Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. In fact, the first Evidence-Based Radio for 2018. Uh, Hopefully, we are all going to have a better year. Um, I'm not quite sure how that's going to happen, but maybe some miracles, uh, you know, of a sort uh, are on the way somehow. Um, But yeah, so um, you are listening, obviously, to uh, WXOJLP 103.3 FM in Northampton, Valley Free Radio. Uh, you can also stream us online at valleyfreeradio.org. Um, and as always, you can find me uh, at Evidence-Based Radio throughout the week. I have a Facebook page, which I try and be good about putting things on throughout the week that aren't necessarily going to make it onto the program or that are more visual. Um, And you can also, if you don't have time to listen now, can listen to this and other episodes uh, as a podcast. I'm on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, etc. So yeah, and I hope that you are staying nice and warm tonight. Uh, The feels like is going to be about negative 24 by uh, the middle of the night. So definitely stay warm, uh, stay inside as much as possible. Uh, It's not necessarily the cold that gets you. It's the wind chill. Um, It's the feeling. It's the wind. Um, I have some friends who have moved here recently from Arizona. And I say, you know, to a point, it's not the cold. It's the wind. At some point, the cold switches over and it's just it's dangerous to be out in such low temperatures. But for us here right now, um, with the temperature around zero and negative one, it's not good. Um, It's definitely dangerous to be out for too long, but it's really that wind um, that you want to watch out for. Okay, Um, so a reminder, uh, Nerd Night NoHo is coming up on Monday. Uh, This month's topics are Life in the Earth's Hot Dark Crust, um, and that's with Begum Topkuoglu, whose name I'm almost certainly mispronouncing uh, because it's, I believe, Eastern European. Um, And so they study microbiology at UMass Amherst. And um, so that sounds really interesting. And then the other talk is going to be about Common Good Northampton, which isn't science related necessarily, but still sounds interesting. Uh, Common Good apparently involves non-cash based economic transactions. So yeah, um, as always, Nerd Night is at 7 p.m. at The Deuce in Northampton. Um, And there's a $5 admission fee just to let you know. Um, And so yeah, we... uh, definitely love Nerd Night uh, here, and I'm definitely planning on being there this month. Um, So yeah, Uh, weather permitting, obviously, (laughs) these days. Um, So yeah, I'm pretty excited. So I hope that some of you will be too. All right. So let us start tonight with an update on a story that I have covered several times, actually, um, in the course of uh, the last year or so. And this is that weird star that everybody keeps uh, coming back to, uh, which is referred to as Tabby's star. And it turns out that with more research, uh, 
people now believe, scientists now believe that the most likely explanation is one of the most mundane, unfortunately, uh, for those who want it to be something more interesting. Uh, it turns out that the most obvious explanation is probably simply a dust cloud. Dust is the most likely, the re is most likely the reason why the star's light appears to dim and brighten, study leader Tabitha um, Boyjian, an astronomer at Louisiana State University, said in a statement. The new data shows that different colors of light are being blocked at different intensities. Therefore, whatever is passing between us and the star is not opaque, as would be expected from a planet or alien megastructure. And uh, so these latest observations of the star were conducted between March 2016 and December 2017. And they used an array of ground-based telescopes organized by the Las Cumbres Observatory. And so the team observed and analyzed four dimming events during the summer of 2017. And so the results mirror those found by another group, which last year uh, suggested that the star is, again, most likely orbited by a cloud of dust. And um, they suspect that the dust cloud rotates around the star about once every 700 Earth days. And what's really cool about this story is that it's an exploration um, the expiration was actually a triumph for citizen science. Uh, the initial weirdness of this star was a collaboration between Boyjian or Burjian, um, and a group of volunteers in the online group Planet Hunters who pour through uh, data from NASA's Kepler telescope looking for exoplanets. And this new research was actually financed by a Kickstarter campaign, uh, which raised more than $107,000. I am so appreciative of all of the people who have contributed to this in the past year, the citizen scientists and professional astronomers, um, Boyjian said. It is quite humbling to have all of these people contributing in various ways to help figure it out. Now, of course, as with all things that are very far away or uh, are not necessarily right in front of us, uh, dust is just the most likely explanation. Uh, though we can now definitively rule out alien megastructures, sorry again, um, there is still a chance it could be something other than dust. Um, it could be exocomets, or it even could be that the star is dimming on its own. Uh, a phenomenon that would require its own theoretical explanation. But given the fact that the wavelengths are being uh, absorbed at different times, uh, I think that the dust explanation is probably the one that is going to end up being uh, the most likely. It definitely seems like from everything that has been discovered so far, that dust is definitely the answer. Um, even though it, it's, again, I understand the most mundane of answers. Uh, and so for those who wanted something uh, very interesting, it's unfortunately not terribly interesting. But as much as it's not interesting to people who want to find alien megastructures, um, it's important science. And it shows how citizen scientists can be really, really important, um, especially in astronomy. There's a lot of 
uh, citizen science going on in astronomy because there's a huge amount of data that is coming back from telescopes and probes. And, you know, there are parts of that information that are just better processed by the human mind than by a computer, especially visual uh, differences. So, um, for instance, dimming. <laughs> um, and so people were able to see that dimming and flag it as something interesting. And so, yeah, definitely something that is a triumph for citizen science. And um, I am a big proponent of citizen science, obviously. Uh, do remember that you can always go to the website Zooniverse. Uh, and there are tons of citizen science projects there that you can get involved in. Um, a lot of them are literally just looking at things on your computer. Um, I remember I did some of the uh, Serengeti photos at one point. So you just looked at photos from camera traps and and you would write, you know, is there a lion in this photo? Is there a uh, wildebeest in this photo? Lots and lots and lots and lots of wildebeest. Um, wildebeest and zebras were the most common, but every once in a while you'd see an elephant or a lion or a secretary bird, which is a very weird looking bird, um, and other things. And it was just really fun. And you just you know, it's just a few minutes a day, just look through um, some pictures, a lot of pictures were just, you know, empty fields with wind as well. But um, definitely, that was a fun time. And there's all sorts of other citizen science, pro science projects out there. Okay, so let's move on now uh, from my <laughs> boosterism of uh, citizen science to talk about some more uh, stories, especially those that have been in the news lately. Um, and so this is a relatively recent one. Uh, we're going to talk about the first one, which is a suggestion that people stop eating romaine lettuce after an outbreak of E. coli, which has sickened more than a dozen people. Um, it's possibly been traced back to a shipment of romaine lettuce, um, but we're not sure about that. So while it may seem sensible to avoid the lettuce, it isn't clear yet that this is definitely the source. To say avoid romaine for now, I don't know if I have enough information to agree with that statement, said Benjamin Chapman, associate professor and food safety specialist at North Carolina State University. So back on December 28th, the CDC announced an investigation into an outbreak of E. coli that has sickened 17 people in 13 states. The reason for suggesting romaine as the culprit is that the strain of E. coli identified as the vector is similar to a Canadian strain, which has been conclusively linked to a shipment of romaine lettuce. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that it is the same here in the U.S. It could be absolutely that it's the same romaine lettuce. It could be that the farm where the romaine lettuce came from also has other uh, lettuces or other um, vegetables that it is growing and sending out. And some of those came into America and are contaminated. Uh, so we just don't have enough information yet. Now, of course, that doesn't necessarily mean that that um, you should completely ignore the advice uh, and eat romaine with abandon, uh, you should definitely apply caution. And if eating romaine, uh, make sure you wash it thoroughly. Um, make sure that you are treating it very carefully. 
Um, and the fact is that avoiding romaine may or may not be enough uh, because other lettuces or foods, again, um, could also be affected, uh, Chapman told Live Science. It could be that there's a different food source of this exact same pathogen. And again, um, so it could also be the fact that we, since we don't know, it could honestly be a coincidence. It could just be that there are two outbreaks, one in Canada and one in the U.S. of E. coli, and the two strains could be similar, but not actually the same. We could be looking at two different outbreaks at the same time, Chapman said. In order to find out the true culprit, the CDC will have to interview both those who were sickened and healthy people to determine if there was a common food eaten by those who were sickened and not by those who remained healthy. Pretty standard uh, epidemiological studying. Now, luckily, this outbreak has not yet produced any deaths. Uh, most E. coli infections are resolved within about a week. Um, people are not terribly happy during that week, but it does eventually resolve. Um, but the bacteria can cause death, especially in young children and the elderly. Um, so definitely for now, be cautious with your lettuce pretty much in general. Um, and if you're a big lettuce eater, do look out for an official announcement from the CDC. Okay, so next is a much more uh, controversial story or sensational story, I should say, um, that has been making the rounds uh, randomly, it seems. Um, but of course, you know, New Year, new clickbait titles are needed, uh, new things to scare people. So this is the flurry of uh, stories that have been uh, pearl-clutchingly worried about the idea that um, the plant that produces cacao might go extinct in the next few decades. And of course, if that happens, then there would be no more chocolate. And so, of course, that's a great clickbait title uh, for pretty much anyone is, you know, chocolate is going to disappear. Um, and so it actually turns out that all of the hype um, from this story can be traced back to a single Business Insider article from the 31st of December. Now, the problem of popular foodstuffs being affected by climate change is real. Um, there are definitely some that are being um, affected by climate change. Clickbait articles like this don't do anyone any service because when you actually dig in and look at what the researchers said and you find that it doesn't actually say that climate change is going to wipe out chocolate, then you end up giving ammunition to people who say, see, it's all just a hoax. Nothing is actually happening here. And so the only source for that original story was a two-year-old study from NOAA, which is the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. And that doesn't even discuss the idea of extinction. In fact, the report states that 40 years, the time in which if we continue on our current path, um, that today's plants would not be able to survive is actually sufficient time for the plants to evolve strategies to survive in the new environment. Now, however, there are some real concerns. Cacao can only be grown currently in a very small strip of rainforested land around the equator. And as the NOAA report suggests, 
the temperature in these areas is expected to continue to rise. In addition, more than half of the world's supply of chocolate currently comes from just two countries, Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana in West Africa. And so with any concentration of plants, uh, when you have a lot of plants all concentrated in the same place, this raises the risk of disease, wiping out large areas of cultivars. Um, you can also have political unrest that disrupts uh, the ability for production to get out into uh, the supply chain and things like that. And so in addition, there's another problem, which is that new areas of the world are actually being introduced to chocolate. So people who didn't used to eat chocolate are actually starting to eat chocolate. And so the demand is now potentially poised to outstrip um, the supply, which would mean higher prices and could potentially uh, mean sort of crazy uh, inflation in uh, chocolate prices, which could lead to panics. Um, but again, this is not going to happen tomorrow. And there are plant scientists who are working on ways to make cacao plants, um, you know, more resistant to disease, more resistant to climate change and things like that. We do honestly have the technology to work on these things now. Um, and so, especially with the rise of techniques like CRISPR and other gene editing techniques, uh, it is very possible that new cultivars that are more climate resistant or can even be planted in other climates may be in our future. So don't panic yet, but do enjoy a bit of chocolate just in case if you'd like. <laughs> okay, so our final story in the realm of food and drink tonight um, is just, uh, it's maddening to me, I have to admit. Um, and this has been all over Facebook the last couple of days, um, or the last week or so. And this is, of course, the new quote unquote, uh, rage that is raw water, or live untreated water. Uh, this is the newest pseudo healthy fad that's sweeping, uh, especially through the West Coast and tech communities. Uh, there's even a company in Maine that is selling what is unfiltered, untreated, unsterilized spring water. Now, the push for this seems to be uh, many feel that filtered tap water, which often has fluoride in it, and to be honest, in some places, can flow through pipes that contain lead, has been stripped of beneficial minerals and probiotics by the filter, by the filtration systems. And of course, as with anything like this, others are suspicious of anything that is connected to the government. Uh, so for instance, a startup called Zero Mass Water has created a system called Source, which draws moisture from the air and filters it to produce about 10 liters of water a day, with a storage capacity be capacity about 60 liters. And so Cody Friesen, uh, the founder, says the goal is to make water, quote, that's ultra high quality and secure, totally disconnected from all infrastructure. Just take a breath of air, he said, 
um, said Mr. Friesen, who is a professor of material sciences at Arizona State University. Take a deep breath. No matter how wealthy or poor you are, you can take a breath and own that air that you breathe. And yet water, the government brings it to you. Um, and so you can see this sort of conspiracy type um, issue here. Now, the problem, of course, is that water does require infrastructure and things that require infrastructure require government intervention generally um, on, you know, infrastructure on such a mass scale. Now, if none of this has given alarm bells yet, uh, the most fervent proponent of raw water is Doug Evans. You may remember Mr. Evans from his failed juicing company, Juicero, uh, which tried to convince consumers that a $700 Wi-Fi equipped juicer was the wave of the future and not just a sign of how out of touch Silicon Valley startups can be. Now, I cannot stress enough that there is a reason for filtering water. There is a reason that people drank alcohol uh, a lot in the past, often rather than water. Um, and one of the big things that people have been objecting with is that uh, people say, well, I drink well water. Well, there is actually an increased risk of uh, potential pathogen pathogenesis from well water. And in fact, the EPA stresses that if you do have a well that you are getting your drinking water from, that you should be having it tested regularly to make sure that that water is actually within the proper standards for drinking water. And so Dr. Donald Her Hensrud, uh, the director of the Healthy Living Program at the Mayo Clinic, uh, told the New York Times, without water treatment, there's acute and then chronic risks. He said that including E. coli bacteria, viruses, parasites, and carcinogenic compounds that can be present in untreated water. There's evidence all over the world of this, and the reason we don't have those conditions is because of our very efficient water treatment. And so this is a huge, huge red flag. Raw water is also, um, in some respects, able to fly under the radar because the FDA's rules on bottled water are frankly kind of lax, um, and the amount of enforcement allotted to it is small. Um, and some bottlers have even gotten exemptions, like that Tourmaline Springs, uh, which is the bottler in Maine that I mentioned earlier. And so uh, the bottom line is always going to be, we started filtering water for a reason. We started adding fluoride to water for a reason. Those reasons include things like cholera and dysentery and chronic tooth decay. Now, I want to stress that this doesn't mean that if you went out and went to your local co-op or you drove up to Maine and you drank a bottle of raw water that you are going to get sick. There is no guarantee. There's no guarantee that you're not going to ever get sick from tap water or from well water. There are obviously risks for all of these sources. However, water from a spring somewhere out in wherever is much more likely 
on average from a population view to be contaminated than is a source that is coming from a municipal um, infrastructure that has checks and balances that has uh, is required to check the water every uh, quarter to make sure that everything is okay. Um, you know, you get those little uh, notices every year uh, from the water, um, from the DPW telling you how the water has done this. Uh, I think they do it at least twice a year, if not four times a year. Um, and so that is something that you do not get with this kind of thing. Um, and you know, this is water that has to have an expiration date because if you leave it around for too long, it starts to go green, uh, from all the algae that's in it. Um, that's not a good thing. (laughs) Um, you know, tap water is really, and that's one of the things that frustrates me about this is tap water is one of the most important uh, public works that we have. And it's been constantly attacked by bottled water companies and now by, uh, frankly, hippies and uh, government conspiracy theorists who are trying to tell you that your tap water is not healthy, whereas it absolutely is in most cases. Again, You cannot guarantee it 100%, but tap water is a really important thing that is actually, usually, again, (laughs) as we have seen in recent uh, months, years, that this is not always the case, but tap water is one of those things that is available to everyone, regardless of their social status. If you have a house that has running water, you can almost certainly drink that water without having to worry about it. Obviously, you don't necessarily have that, uh, as we saw in Flint, Michigan. Um, But generally, that is through someone's mis- Uh, use of the resources. Uh, And so definitely, please, (laughs) if you take any advice I ever give you, uh, do not drink raw water. Uh, Trust in your tap water. Uh, Run it through a Brita filter if it makes you feel better. Uh, But seriously, tap water is almost, especially in this area, Massachusetts has really good water. Um, Uh, Those same friends from Arizona that I talked about earlier, they said one of the greatest things is being able to actually drink the tap water because they don't have as good of tap water in Arizona as they do here. Um, So definitely enjoy your tap water if you're in Massachusetts. Okay, that brings us to uh, the break for the program. Uh, We're going to play some PSAs and some show promos, and then we are going to come back and I'm going to talk about mindfulness. Uh, So hang on for just a second. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. 
Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Sassy! Today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. Oh, nuts! There's a bobcat in this cave! Save us, Sassy! <coughs> you will, but first you'd like to stress the importance of cat adoption? <coughs> Over 5 million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? Help us, Sassy! Why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the shelterpetproject.org. Remember, adopt. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. iHeart J-Rock with DJ Sakura is your weekly two-hour show devoted to rock music from Japan. Join me on Saturday nights, 10 p.m. to midnight. I'll be playing the very best in the newest J-Rock, J-Pop, J-Metal, VK, you name it, I'll play it as long as it's from Japan. Thank you. You are listening to Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM. I'm Mayor David Narkowitz, and I support Northampton's community radio station. Nerd Night NoHo is proud to support Valley Free Radio where a monthly speaker series featuring experts from the community talking about art, culture, and science. You can find us at noho.nerdnight.com. All right, we are back. And we are going to take a minute to talk about mindfulness. Now, this is one of those techniques that has been out there uh, being touted as actually being science-based. Uh, so let's look at whether or not it is really science and evidence-based. The first problem is that there doesn't seem to be any coherent definition of just what mindfulness really is. And that makes it pretty hard to have an evidence-based measure of its effectiveness. And so Stephen Novella at the blog Science-Based Medicine, which I will always recommend to people, 
uh, referenced a recent review on the subject called Mind the Hype, a critical evaluation and prescriptive agenda for research on mindfulness and meditation. And so he notes that, quote, Mindfulness in various studies can refer to alleged specific mental phenomena such as psychological distancing slash um, reperceiving, uh, reperceiving, sorry, <laughs> decentering and inhibitory control, non-conceptual discriminatory awareness, acceptance and reintegration, uh, or focused attention, decentering and meta-awareness. Um, and further, he points out that proponents tend to argue that mindfulness is also uh, partly relaxation, partly cognitive therapy, and partly developing vaguely defined skills that allow you to tap into uh, those nonspecific ideas listed above. <laughs> and so because the definition is so broad, it's again hard to tell how you would measure whether any technique is particularly successful. And in addition, most of the studies reviewed have poor controls or were methodologically weak. And so some of the studies didn't even bother having a control group. And it turns out that the best studies, the ones that had the best uh, protocols uh, with the most active controls were those with the most modest results. And so the reviewers noted that in a recent review and meta-analysis commissioned by the U.S. Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, MBIs, uh, that's Mindfulness-Based Interventions, uh, compared to active controls, were found to have a mixture of only moderate, low, or no efficacy, depending on the disorder being treated. Now, again, this isn't to say that there's no efficacy to relaxation and cognitive therapies that focus on letting go of stressors and other forms of attachment um, or in order to um, be more detached from these sorts of worries um, and that this isn't useful. Of course, things like that can be useful. It simply means that the idea that mindfulness as a specific set of activities that lead to a specific result is not yet something that can be considered as evidence-based medical practice. More research on specific interventions with specific goals and good quality controls are needed to see if there is anything specific to the idea of mindfulness beyond the fact that you know, reducing stress and increasing relaxation can certainly have positive health effects for a person. And so it's important to think about this sort of terminology carefully because it's precisely the, the use of loose definitions that allows all sorts of pseudoscientific interventions to be considered part of uh, evidence-based medicine as uh, sort of adjuncts. So this is the sort of uh, holistic uh, things that are supposed to be complementary. So for instance, acupuncture clearly has a real effect as good as or better than placebo in trials, which means it could be argued to be evidence-based. Now, don't quote mine that because I'm going to <laughs> uh, go on. This is until you realize that this effect is carried whether or not the needles are placed in supposed acupuncture 
nodes uh, or if the needles are actually inserted into the skin at all. In other words, it's simply the performance of the act rather than anything specific to the act, which seems to give people the ability to feel an effect. This hardly seems like an actual endorsement for the use of acupuncture as a therapeutic intervention because it doesn't show any efficacy for the specifics that the acupuncturist says are going on. If you don't even have to put the needles in, if you can put them anywhere, then it's basically meaningless. So yeah, let's move on now. Uh, this is another really interesting, we're going to totally shift uh, now to other to the other side of uh, sort of science and um, I wanted to talk about some interesting archaeological stuff. So first is the discovery of two uh, children buried some 11,500 years ago in what is now referred to as the Upward Sun River area of Alaska. And so this is shedding light on the origin of the native inhabitants of the Americas. And so the two uh, female remains one a late-term fetus and the other probably her cousin, a six-week-old, were first covered in red ochre, then buried in a circular pit surrounded by hunting weapons uh, made from bones and antlers. There was intentionality in the burial ceremony, says Ben Potter from the University of Alaska at Fairbanks, who uncovered their skeletons in 2013. These were certainly children who were well-loved. Since then, their remains have yielded DNA evidence that points towards when and how the first migrants crossed into what is now the Americas. And so the two uh, young girls' remains were given names that translate into Sunrise Girl Child and Dawn Twilight Girl Child by the local indigenous community. I decided not to attempt to pronounce the native uh, names because I know that I wouldn't be able to do them justice. I would just butcher them. Um, and so I decided to not even attempt that. Um, and so the discovery of the remains was extremely fortuitous as few remains have been found from such northerly or westerly parts of the Americas and also from so far in the past. It's hard to impress upon you how rare they are, says Potter. The window into the past that these children provide is priceless. And so after analyzing the DNA of the six-month-old infant, the researchers, including Potter and his colleagues, Jose Victor Moreno, um, Moreno Meyer, and Lassa Vinner, have shown that the two belong to a unique lineage of people that the researchers are calling the ancient Beringians. And so um, Beringia is the name of the uh, sort of land bridge that was um, that was exposed during the uh, Ice Age when all of the oceans, when a lot of the water from the oceans was pulled into ice, then uh, there was more land exposed. And so that area um, is called Beringia. And so it connects sort of... Uh, Eastern Asia and Alaska. And so they are a distinct group. Uh, they're distinct from all known groups of Native Americans. 
And so by comparing this ancient DNA with DNA from groups of Native Americans, the team was actually able to show that they descend from a single founding population that started to split from other East Asians around 36,000 years ago. The final separation occurred between 22,000 and 18,000 years ago. After this, the lineage that became the ancient Beringians and the lineage that led to Native Americans split. And finally, the lineage of Native Americans split into the northern and southern lineages between 14,600 and 17,500 years ago. And this discovery gives tangible evidentiary support to the prevailing theory theory called the Beringian standstill hypothesis. And so this scenario, uh, which has been a dominant one for many years, suggests that the ancestors of Native Americans spent a period of time isolated from other East Asian populations before they were able to complete the journey into the Americas, because the area was, as you might remember, covered in a giant ice sheet, uh, which would have prevented passage into the continent. So it was only about 15,000 years ago uh, when people could actually start migrating down into the Americas, at which point they did the split where they split into the lineages of Northern and uh, Southern Americans. Now, where things get a little contentious is the discussion of where the lineages that became the ancestors of the Beringians and Native Americans were isolated. Many believe that they paused in the area of Beringia and then split from there, making the migration into the New World a single event. However, Potter actually believes they paused further back in Northeast Asia, where they split from the ancestors of Native Americans. According to this theory, the two lineages independently traveled into Beringia and subsequently into the Americas, perhaps even by different routes or in different time periods. And what's interesting is that which side you're on uh, can actually depend on a newer uh, piece of evidence that has come out. So um, recently there was a find in the Bluefish Caves in uh, the Yukon, Yukon Territory. And so a recent study there suggested that animal bones found at the site show signs of human cut marks and uh, that the bones are from around 24,000 years ago. Potter, for his uh, side, he doesn't believe that. Um, he, uh, he thinks that the evidence for that is not strong enough. Now, almost all of the uh, researchers reject a controversial study that you might have heard of, uh, which claimed that bones from a mastodon showed signs of butchering with stone tools. I am super skeptical about that, says Potter. Early modern humans aren't even out of Africa at that point. So you'd be talking about, I don't know, a Denisovian? And there are no Denisovians within 10,000 miles of that site. Um, So this was a very controversial find um, and very much not accepted at the moment. Uh, So getting back to this population um, of ancient Beringians, Potter notes that we don't know the overall population, but we can reasonably infer that it was relatively low, maybe 20 to 40 people. 
to have these children die over one or two summers in the season with the most abundance of resources tells us something about risky about the risky and delicate nature of life in the far north. Now, one of the really nice things about this is that Potter has been very respectful um, for the feelings and um, concerns of the native people in whose land the remains were found. Um, he made sure to get uh, permission uh, given the history of non-consensual DNA analysis of other Native people's genetic heritage, um, it's very refreshing to hear that Potter asked the local um, Athabascan community before doing the DNA analysis. Um, and so he says, I'm also interested in what they're interested in. What can we include in our analysis that we can give back to them? For instance, salmon fishing is extremely important to the local population residing in the area now, and Potter's team was actually able to undercover to uncover evidence of salmon production at the Upward Sun River site, making it the earliest such evidence in the Americas. The longevity of resource resource use in the past is highly relevant to the people now, he says. And so this is the kind of research that Native peoples are really interested in sharing with scientists. Um, and so, for instance, Kim Talbert of the University of Alberta notes that much work that has been done favors questions of interest to those who came after, often in service of a narrative that claims that basically we're all immigrants to this land and therefore Native populations do not have a unique claim. This type of research is done largely for the benefit of non-Indigenous peoples, she says. They center a settler colonial narrative about a largely one-way migration story into the Americas and the idea that everyone is some form of immigrant. And so it's really important for scientists who are studying ancient populations of the Americas to understand the needs and concerns of living populations in order to avoid the mistakes of the past and to be able to service those communities with their research. Um, and not only because it's the right thing to do, but it also makes it much easier. If you are working with the people who are still alive today, you can learn better things. Um, it's much easier to talk to living people about um, what they have experienced, what their stories are, because we know that in these stories, there are often, if not simply grains of truth, but very large amounts of truth. Um, and so we are always better off to deal with people instead of dealing with people as if they are some sort of other. Um, it's much better to bring Native American people into the conversation rather than simply tell them um, about basically what you've learned that is of no use to them, um, especially with this sort of DNA analysis. A lot of that isn't important to them because they don't believe it necessarily, um, especially people who are more have a more traditional idea. They have origin stories that don't involve moving from Asia. And so, you know, even though this is much more objective and scientific, it is sometimes better to respect that idea 
and to talk to them about things that they are actually interested in. Um, and so, yeah. Uh, anyways, let us move on to other things. Uh, let's move across the globe and talk about a couple of stories about mummies. So the first is about a mummy of a two-year-old boy who died sometime in the uh, late 1500s. Um, and it had been thought that he had died of smallpox. He was buried in the Basilica of St. Domenico Maggiore in Naples, Italy, um, and his body was exhumed between 1983 and 1985. And so the pockmarked body certainly suggested that smallpox was the likely killer. But new genomic evidence suggests that the boy died not of smallpox, but from the hepatitis B virus. Now, this is an important result because the mummy had been thought to be the earliest evidence for smallpox in the medieval period. It was actually considered a pivotal case in the history of smallpox, uh, a disease caused by the variola virus, and the only disease that has been successfully eradicated from the human population. Now, both immunostaining and electron microscopy had suggested the presence of smallpox particles in the pustules. However, these data emphasize the importance of molecular approaches to help identify the presence of key pathogens in the past, enabling us to better constrain the time they may have infected humans, said evolutionary geneticist and lead investigator Henrik Poinar. It turns out that in young children, hepatitis B, a liver infection that continues to kill an estimated 786,000 people worldwide each year, can cause a blistering facial rash, um, as well as a rash on the face, uh, legs, buttocks, and arms, uh, which were the areas of the body uh, that showed pockmarks. And so this case shows the difficulty in diagnosing illnesses in ancient remains. Uh, if you just are looking at the ancient remains and you think, oh, well, this fits this idea, um, you know, and you don't go any further, you might be misdiagnosing. And so what they did was they took small samples of skin and bone, and the researchers were then able to stitch together pieces of genetic information in order to more clearly determine the cause of death. And what they came up with is a complete hepatitis B genome with a complete lack of a smallpox genome. And there is an even further interesting point, which is that when they used scanning electron microscopy, I don't know why I'm having such trouble with that word tonight, <laughs> they found no evidence of either smallpox or hepatitis B particles, but rather particles of a virus of unknown origin. And what they suggest is that the it might turn out that the mummification process actually changes the structure of the viral particles, which is why they could have been originally mistaken for smallpox. This illuminates the power of ADNA in providing definitive evidence or clarifying retrospective diagnoses, where etiology may be uncertain and morphology complicated for key type specimens that provide critical time points for the origin or presence of specific pathogens, the researchers wrote in their paper. Now, in addition, the results also showed that the virus found in the mummy is quite similar to that that still infects people today, 
which is kind of odd since most viruses today actually evolve and mutate much more rapidly. The more we understand about the behavior of past pandemics and outbreaks, the greater our understanding of how modern pathogens might work and spread, and this information will ultimately help in their control, Poinar said. And anything that helps with uh, controlling outbreaks of pathogens is good. All right. So finally tonight, I want to talk about another mummy. Uh, let us switch civilizations and talk about an exciting new breakthrough in visualizing the writings on ancient Egyptian mummies. A new high-tech camera setup is allowing researchers to study texts that were written on strips of papyrus, uh, which were then recycled into wrappings for mummies. So the camera is a great non-invasive technique. It's able to detect Egyptian blue, which is a carbon-based pigment, and other inks that contain iron, according to Adam Gibson, a professor of medical physics at the University College London. And so ancient Egyptians initially wrapped the mummy in fabric bandages, uh, but then they were covered by cartonnage, which is a form of paper mache made from bits of recycled papyri, um, or occasionally fabric. And so then once this layer hardened, it was covered by plaster, which was then painted by artisans. That papyri, used by ancient Egyptians in their daily lives to write everything from shopping lists to tax notices to political notes and even land surveys, has previously been pulled from mummies using much more invasive techniques. This is how we get information about normal people rather than the rulers, Gibson told Live Science. Um, because if you look at uh, sort of pyramids and statues and things like that, all of that is mostly about the rulers. But these sorts of notes are much more about uh, normal people. And so the camera system uses a multispectral imaging system, which can detect 12 wavelengths of light from ultraviolet to infrared. Uh, light. And so Gibson, along with Melissa Terrace, an honorary professor at the UCL Center for Digital Humanities, spearheaded the work. The ability for the camera to see in different wavelengths is useful because different inks or dyes respond differently to different wavelengths, which is why we perceive them as different colors, uh, Gibson noted. And in addition, some dyes actually fluoresce. If you shine blue light on them, they might glow green or red, Gibson said. And so the papyrus notes were written between 2,500 and 18 years, and 1,800 uh, years ago and are mostly written in demotic, which is a script used largely for business and literary documents. Now, the team doesn't actually have anyone at the moment who can read demotic, uh, so they will need to find a scholar to actually translate the texts. But the team has also... Uh, used the technique on a coffin to reveal the name Irothoro, uh, which is a common name in ancient Egyptian that translates to the eye of Horus is against them. And again, this was naked to the invisible, uh, to the uh, invisible to the naked eye. Now, the team believes that this technique could be used widely to decipher ancient Egyptian texts without damaging the fragile papyri they are written on. You can find some horrific videos on YouTube of people taking 2,000-year-old papyruses and laughing as they destroy it in order to read the text that's inside it, Gibson said. Hopefully, those days are soon mostly 
uh, to be at an end. Okay, that is all we have for tonight. And uh, please do stay tuned, however, for civil politics coming up next. Uh, I will be back next week. Good night. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.